Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, April 1st. In today's news, some New York hospitals have stopped resuscitating coronavirus patients as rationing arrives in America. The United Nations says this pandemic is the single biggest challenge facing the globe since World War II. And the contagion is bringing out the worst in some people, but it's also bringing out the best. First, though, the big idea. President Trump and the physicians advising the federal pandemic response delivered a bleak outlook for the spread of the coronavirus across our country, predicting a best case scenario of 100,000 to 240,000 fatalities in the United States and summoning all Americans to make additional sacrifices to slow the spread. For context, we lost 58,000 troops in the entire Vietnam War. Yesterday, the death toll from the coronavirus in the United States exceeded the death toll from the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001. Trump has adopted a newly somber and sedate tone, we'll see how long it lasts, and contradicted many of his own previous assessments of the virus. He instructed Americans to continue social distancing, school closures, and other mitigation efforts for an additional 30 days, and to think of the choices they make as matters of life and death. Trump and his task force members said that community mitigation practices in place for the past 15 days have worked, and that extending them is essential. The mathematical modeling the White House presented suggests that doing so could save hundreds of thousands of lives. Without community mitigation, the government's models predict 1.5 million to 2.2 million additional Americans could die of COVID-19, which is the disease the virus causes. The data presented yesterday was based in part on publicly available models. One was created by the University of Washington's Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, which projects the national strain on hospitals will peak on April 15th. It also estimates deaths through the summer at 38,000 to 162,000. That's a lower projection than some earlier models and than the White House's own estimate. But that University of Washington model notably assumes that every single state enacts strict restrictions on its residents, and some states, including megastates like Florida, have yet to do so. The model also assumes that the entire country will maintain these strict restrictions until the summer. But Trump has so far extended the White House's guidance only until April 30th. The actual death count in coming months will depend on a variety of factors that no one yet knows, including whether people dutifully follow the guidelines, whether states are able to procure enough ventilators and other supplies, and whether hospitals become so overwhelmed that people can't get care. That is why the quality of the federal response matters so much. And as states across the country have pleaded for critical medical equipment from a key national stockpile, Florida has promptly received 100% of its first two requests, with both the president and Republican Governor Ron DeSantis touting their close relationship as the reason why. Red states like Oklahoma and Kentucky have also received more of the equipment than they've even requested. But other states, blue states like Illinois, Massachusetts, and Maine have secured only a fraction of their requests. It's a disparity that has caused frustration and confusion in governor's offices across the country. State and congressional leaders are flooding FEMA with letters and calls seeking clarity about how it's allocating these suddenly in-demand resources like masks, ventilators, and medical gowns. 
Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers, a Democrat, said in an interview that the struggle to find ventilators is causing a high level of frustration. Governors and state officials have become increasingly frustrated by what they're telling us is a Byzantine and unsteady process for distributing supplies from the strategic national stockpile. Several complain about chaos and disarray within the system and almost a total lack of guidance about how they can secure life-saving supplies. Some GOP-led states, to be sure, like Georgia, have had trouble filling their requests. But Trump has contributed to the sense that politics could be a factor by repeatedly, including again last night, attacking Democratic governors who have criticized his handling of the crisis. Still, other Democrats have given the administration plaudits for being accessible and responding to their requests. And even after he verbally attacked Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan and Jay Inslee of Washington, Trump did approve federal disaster support for the states. Privately, though, these officials are expressing alarm about a system that is beset by inefficiencies and disorder. One thing we heard was that boxes of equipment have arrived at times in states unexpectedly. For example, a shipment to Minnesota arrived in the middle of the night when the state's warehouses to receive it were closed. Officials in North Carolina told us they're scheduled to receive a shipment today, but they don't know what it's going to contain. They're likening it to a mystery box. An administration official with knowledge of the rationing decisions says political affiliation is definitely not a consideration, but this person says that Trump has been making promises over the phone when governors call him and then FEMA has to try to figure out how to accommodate that. The Pentagon says it has not shipped 2,000 ventilators in its possession because it hasn't been told where to send them. In order to ship the equipment to FEMA and the Department of Health and Human Services, the DOD says it has to be given the location by civilian authorities, but the civilian authorities haven't decided where they want the ventilators to go. And after Trump repeated again that testing is no longer a problem in our country, Maryland Governor Larry Hogan, a Republican, said that's just not true. None of the testing advancements the president touted in a conference call with governors have been deployed. Hogan, who's chairman of the Nonpartisan National Governors Association, says the govs are pushing the federal government to coordinate the purchase of these supplies and the tests to avoid bidding wars between the states. A few weeks ago, Trump said the federal government would partner with major retailers to set up drive-through coronavirus testing sites. But HHS admits that only five locations nationwide from these major retailers, which include Walmart, CVS, and Walgreens, are offering testing, and none are open to the general public. Meanwhile, testing backlogs at private health labs have ballooned, making it difficult to deliver a comprehensive view of the contagion's spread for doctors and policymakers. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, last week, DNRs, or do not resuscitate policies for coronavirus patients who stop breathing or are in cardiac arrest, were being discussed as part of worst case scenario planning. Over the past few days, however, as New York City's death count topped 1,000 with another 11,000 people hospitalized amid predictions the peak of the crisis is still two weeks away, some hospitals and medical centers have now activated these protocols. Such a policy was announced at St. Joseph's University Medical Center in Patterson, New Jersey. A memo detailing similar changes was sent out Saturday at Elmhurst Hospital in Queens, but then rescinded late Tuesday afternoon. Doctors at other hospitals are informally putting such protocols into practice. 
spokespeople for Montefiore, NYU Langone Health, and New York Presbyterian's Brooklyn Methodist said no new system-wide protocols have been adopted. But doctors and nurses at each of those facilities say that some doctors have been informally allowed in recent days to override a COVID-19 patient's code status. That's the part of their medical record that expresses a desire for life-saving medical intervention. More than 1,000 New York Police Department officers have now tested positive for the coronavirus. Another 5,600, or 15.6% of the workforce, called in sick yesterday. Blood banks are panicking that they will face a supply crisis about four weeks from now. Give blood if you're healthy and you can. And as the situation continues to turn more dire, hospitals are trying to censor and silence frontline healthcare workers to stop them from getting word out about how bad it really is on the inside. Several systems are threatening to fire anyone who publicizes the poor working conditions. Some have followed through. A Washington state hospital fired an emergency room doctor after he gave an interview detailing what he believes are inadequate tests and equipment. In Chicago, a nurse was fired after emailing colleagues that she didn't want to continue to work while wearing a mask that she knows won't protect her. New data, meanwhile, shows that the disease is thrusting people with chronic conditions of all ages into intensive care units, reinforcing a critically important lesson that we've discussed here before. Although the coronavirus is typically more severe among older people, people of any age with underlying medical conditions are at increased risk if they contract the virus. That helps explain why COVID-19 continues to take from us both the old and the young. Jorge Ortiz Garay of Brooklyn became the first Catholic priest to die from the virus in the United States. He passed away just three days after leading mass via a live stream. He was 49. Jita Ramji, a world-renowned virologist and a leading HIV researcher, died at 64. Jenny Danker, the director of radiology at the Ohio State University Medical Center, died at 60. She just lost her husband to ALS. A 13-year-old boy in London, thought to be the youngest person in the UK to die from the virus, had no apparent underlying health conditions, and he had tested positive just last Friday. It's a reminder of how quickly some people deteriorate. Number two, Vice President Pence has frozen all coronavirus aid to foreign countries after discovering that the efforts weren't being coordinated with domestic requests for equipment. The federal task force is now scrutinizing all of USAID's deliveries to countries requesting equipment. Pence has also placed a moratorium on overseas shipments of USAID's own stockpiles of protective gear, in some cases asking that the equipment be sent back to the United States. Israel is deploying security forces to force ultra-Orthodox Jews to stay home as their neighborhoods become hotspots. Kenyan police fatally shot a teenager as he stood on his balcony during a coronavirus curfew crackdown. China today reported a sharp increase in new cases as the National Health Commission finally began counting in official statistics the number of people who have been infected but don't show symptoms. Farms across Western Europe depend on Eastern European migrants who come during the growing season but the border closings because of the coronavirus now threaten the entire continent's food supply. European countries say they have enough food for the next few weeks, but there's growing alarm about what's going to happen if this crisis drags deeper into the growing season because there's no one right now to work the fields. And Turkmenistan has 
banned the word coronavirus from its vocabulary in a radical, terrible attempt to suppress information about the pandemic. State-controlled media outlets are no longer allowed to use the word or describe the disease. It's even been removed from brochures distributing health information in schools, hospitals, and workplaces. That's not the way to win. Number three, here in this country, online trolls have been breaking into multiple Alcoholic Anonymous meetings being held via Zoom video conferences to harass recovering addicts with slurs and encouraging them to drink. This is truly a monstrous thing to do. I spent yesterday on the phone with six Americans who have lost their jobs through no fault of their own and are now stuck at home. Each of them lost their employee-sponsored health insurance effective today, April 1st. One of the men I talked to yesterday in Houston is a recovering alcoholic. He's single, and he's at home in his apartment. He used to work as a bartender in the Houston airport. And he said the AA meetings via Zoom video conferences are the only way that he's making it through the day. Meanwhile, profiteers are trying to take advantage of people's desperation to protect their families by price gouging and selling super shoddy masks at super high markups. The frenzy has broken down standard quality controls, opening up the market to an influx of masks of uncertain origin and limited effectiveness. There's a lot of terrible stuff going on, but this crisis is also bringing out inspiring acts of kindness and selflessness. You know, the messages we're getting every day are, are so depressing. Don't go to work. Don't see your friends. Don't visit your grandma in the nursing home. Don't bring food to your sister who works at a hospital. Don't hold your wife's hand while she gives birth. Don't let your kids play together. Don't pray together. Don't hug. Of the many cruelties of this pandemic, this is one of the hardest to accept. In a time when all we want is to be close to the people we care about, closeness is the one thing we can't have. Six feet has never felt farther away. Psychologists are worried about the long-term effects of our new socially distant reality. Decades of research has shown that loneliness and isolation are associated with high blood pressure, chronic inflammation, weakened immune systems, and a host of other health issues. But there's also hope in the data. Studies reveal that human connection, something as simple as getting an offer of help from a stranger or even looking at a picture of someone you love, can ease pain and reduce the physical symptoms of stress and anxiety. People who feel supported by their social networks are more likely to live longer. One experiment even found that people with many social ties are less susceptible to the common cold. For everyone quarantined in solitude, aching and afraid for far-flung family and friends, this science can and should provide some solace, a supportive phone call, an empathetic ear, an expression of love. These things can bolster the immune system on a molecular level. Whether you are the recipient or the giver, kindness is good for your health. And we're seeing a lot of acts of kindness. A newspaper delivery man in New Jersey is bringing groceries to his older customers on his morning route at no extra charge. A 30-year-old man with terminal leukemia passed away after testing positive but telling doctors to use their limited resources in the hospital to save someone else. 
And a Minnesota state trooper pulled over a doctor for speeding on Interstate 35. But instead of giving her a ticket, he gave her a fistful of N95 masks that had been issued for his own protection. Dr. Sarash Ashraf Janjua says she burst into tears. She wrote on her Facebook page, quote, The veil of civilization may be thin, but not all that lies behind it is savage. We are going to be okay. And that's The Daily 202 for Wednesday, April 1st. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. Stay safe. I'll talk to you tomorrow.